Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. Our advisory practice was signaling many leading indicators that sustainability-based infrastructure was set to explode in growth. In 2013, we were periodically receiving emails from investors asking if we knew anything about these kind of funky projects converting things like manure to gas. By 2017, it was probably every other inbound email we were receiving. And it was spreading across asset classes very quickly. So we were starting to see more in fuels, energy, agriculture, waste management, etc. So we thought to ourselves, if we can get ahead of the curve and become extremely deep subject matter experts in these sectors by just solely dedicating our growth to them, that we would amass significant experience and it'd be very difficult for other competing firms to try to catch up to us once they really became the dominant sectors that people were focusing on. Hey, everyone. The climate transition we're living through brings so many opportunities to rethink our infrastructure. It could easily be the entire focus of this podcast week after week. Today's episode focuses on a handful of those opportunities, converting waste into valuable upcycled materials, renewable energy infrastructure, biomass, biofuels, and more. We're joined by Ben Hubbard, CEO of Nexus PMG, a company that advises and develops a wide range of infrastructure projects. They're a fascinating company, and as you'll hear, they're engineering sustainable solutions for everything from wood pellets to solar farms to dog food. They just received a $50 million investment to accelerate their growth, and leading that round was another fascinating company, Greenbacker Capital Management. Greenbacker is not just an investor, but also owns and operates a portfolio of solar plants, wind farms, and battery storage systems. Greenbacker principal Quinn Paslowski joins us as well for a conversation that sheds a lot of light on the opportunity to invest in the infrastructure we need to reduce emissions, eliminate waste, and more. Enjoy. Ben Quinn, welcome to Invest in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, yeah, same. Great. So where are you each dialing in from? Ben, you want to go? Yeah, I'm sunny Dallas, Texas. I am beautiful Palo Alto, California, although I'm based out of New York City. Fantastic. Well, Ben, you might be the first Texan on the podcast. So welcome. Excited to have someone from Dallas. Let's get in with some intros. Ben, will you set the stage for us just by briefly sharing your background, your current role, and a sentence or two about your company? So I'm an engineer by degree, but I'll willingly admit an awful one by practice or lack thereof. I spent the first 10 years of my career working on high-profile domestic and international infrastructure mega projects for one of the world's largest engineering construction companies called Fluor. I worked in some very, very remote locations, such as the South Gobi Desert of Mongolia, some of the outer deserts of Saudi Arabia, 
But doing so afforded me some incredible boots on the ground project management experience, which ultimately allowed me and my founding partners who worked alongside me out there to come together and form Nexus PMG back in 2013. In its simplest form, which we'll get into a little bit later, Nexus PMG is a services business, a development company, incubator, and an investment firm all under one roof with a sole dedication to green molecule and circular economy-based low-carbon infrastructure asset classes. Those include things such as renewable natural gas, sustainable aviation fuels, and green hydrogen. So just to name a few. Quinn, over to you. Tell us a bit about your background and the role that you're playing today. Sure. So I started my career at NRG, the IPP, out of Princeton, New Jersey. I was there for about four years. And while I was there, I developed a keen understanding of the way that green electrons are created and used throughout the electrical grid and a better understanding for the grid as a whole from production to consumption. After my time at NRG, I moved over to Nomura, where I was part of the founding team of the infrastructure and power finance team at that investment bank and ultimately grew their direct lending practice on the renewable structured product side to a book of roughly one and a half billion dollars. After my four-year tenure there, I moved over to be the first employee, second person on the growth equity team at Greenbacker. Greenbacker has historically been an asset owner and operator. They launched a new strategy called Greenbacker Development Opportunities in mid-2020. I was hired at the start of 2021 to accelerate the growth of that platform, and that platform invests in developers and companies that are looking to accelerate the energy transition. And over the past three years, this strategy has grown to manage roughly $300 million and invest across roughly 15 portfolio companies, one of which is Nexus. And we're very excited about our investment in Nexus because it is the first time that we are branching out of our traditional investment in green electron creation, distribution, and management into the green molecule space. We'll get into it later in the podcast. Our investment in Nexus was predicated on the fact that these guys have the services business, which gives them a extremely deep knowledge of the space and allows us to work with Nexus on subsequent investments into the green molecule space. Thanks, Quinn. That was a perfect pass back to Ben. Let's go a bit deeper and understand what Nexus PMG does and really what sets you apart. I understand that you initially worked in oil and gas that helped you develop a unique approach to understanding the risks of different types of infrastructure projects. Tell us a bit about the origins of the company and the unique approach that you bring to market. Most of our experience prior to forming Nexus was in mining, metals, and and largely fossil fuel-based projects. So as you can imagine, in the early years of Nexus, we were three founders, young, scratching and clawing our way to earn business, largely stuck to what we knew and where our experience was. Despite being young, to posture ourselves as a consulting firm, (laughs) we were able to utilize some data-driven analysis techniques and tools that we had built to differentiate ourselves. We had learned that there is a significant difference between paper-based risk and practical implementation risk, which we often see a massive difference in the market from an investment perspective and underwriting perspective. And it was the latter that investors were truly looking for to understand from their advisors. So I think our unique approach to being very pointed in how risk will actually materialize rather than what it looks like in a contract was what really started to differentiate us. It was this approach to capturing and conveying that risk that earned us our first client. And then over the next several years, one became two, two became four, four became eight. 
And I'm proud to say that today we represent over 100 clients spanning across investors, technology companies, Fortune 500s, and developers. Great. And tell us a bit about the transition you made in moving away from fossil fuel projects and focusing instead on sustainability projects. So in 2017, where we really began to experience our significant growth trajectory, started to align with our decision to dedicate entirely to infrastructure projects that would reduce carbon intensity. This meant no more projects that did not reduce carbon footprint or enhance resource efficiency. In other words, most of the work that we had been executing. (laughs) So it was a big, big decision for us. But the decision stemmed from largely personal and professional reasons. Personal in that we all wanted to build something that would make a positive impact and that we could be proud of, that our children could be proud of. And professional in that our advisory practice was signaling many leading indicators that sustainability-based infrastructure was set to explode in growth. In 2013, we were periodically receiving emails from investors asking if we knew anything about these kind of funky projects converting things like manure to gas. By 2017, it was probably every other inbound email we were receiving. And it was spreading across asset classes very quickly. So we were starting to see more in fuels, energy, agriculture, waste management, etc. So we thought to ourselves, if we can get ahead of the curve and become extremely deep subject matter experts in these sectors by just solely dedicating our growth to them, that we would amass significant experience and it would be very difficult for other competing firms to try to catch up to us once they really became the dominant sectors that people were focusing on. And in large part to the pandemic and in large part to just the hyper-focused and media attention that is now on sustainable that played out really well for us. And we are considered now a a leading player in the space because of that decision. Ben, I'm eager to get into some examples to make this more tangible for our listeners. And I'm aware that there's several different types of projects that you've taken on, but also I'm aware that you have several different types of products that align to different use cases. So perhaps you could tell us about both through a few quick examples. Yep. So we have three primary service offerings in our services company. We have advisory, which is heavily kind of pre-investment due diligence and post-investment kind of monitoring. So construction monitoring, things of that nature. We have our project delivery services business unit, which includes commercial development support. So helping people negotiate their offtake and fuel supply agreements, their site purchase agreements, things of that nature, and technical design services. So we now design do the early preliminary design of a lot of these facilities in these asset classes. And then we have an operational readiness and turnaround division, which is focused on turning around distressed assets, as well as preparing greenfield projects for their operations. So close to startup. I'll highlight one really good project that kind of showcases each of those. So from the advisory perspective, a company we worked closely with through the Mark Cuban companies who had made an investment was a company called Chapul Farms. Really interesting business that is focused on converting waste streams. Right now, they're mostly focused on DDGs and spent grains from the ethanol industry and using conversion technology and and biological process to make black soldier fly larvae. So essentially... The larvae bioconvert, and then they dry that larvae and largely sell it to the pet food industry. And if if you actually look at the back of a lot of kind of the more modern up-and-coming pet food brands, you'll actually see BSFL, black soldier fly larvae, as a key ingredient because of its extremely high protein density and sustainable characteristics. So we were able to support them from an advisory perspective and then ultimately ended up loving their business so much. We actually made a multi-million dollar investment and became a partner with the company. We've designed their first facility. We've been co-developing their first facility with them. I sit on the board and played a really material role. So it's a good example of where our advisory practice is really an anchor to other aspects of our business. We also have another example is a company, like I mentioned earlier, that we do a lot of 
incubate development companies. One of such is called Pathway Energy. I think you'll find this fun and fascinating in the top of the conversation prior to you and I were briefly chatting about wood pellets. But in this particular business, Pathway Energy is is developing projects that utilize woody biomass and converts that woody biomass into sustainable aviation fuels while capturing 100% of the CO2 stream and sequestering it offshore through a class six well, which are essentially subsurface rock formations that allow for the long-term storage of CO2. Really exciting development platform. Its CEO is one of the five partners in Nexus and is part of the Greenbacker investment. We spun those some of these development platforms out formally, and they have their own leadership teams. And Nexus, a services business, as you can imagine, is providing a lot of support to that development platform. So not only did we invest in it, but we're also doing a lot of the engineering work and a lot of the support work from a services perspective. So that one's pretty exciting. And then on the last example for the operational readiness and turnaround work, and this is one we're probably most proud of, is a business that we partly own called BioNorth Energy. Back in 2020, we actually acquired a 38-megawatt distressed biomass-fired power plant in Fort St. James, British Columbia. So the asset was really struggling. They couldn't get it to run effectively. It was negative cash flow. So we went in and we were really blessed to partner with the First Nations tribe in the local area by the name of the Nakazli Wooten, as well as a company called Aero Transportation Systems, which was one of the largest trucking companies that moved all the biomass in the region, which was obviously a critical piece to a biomass power plant. The three of us came together, we acquired the facility, and I'm happy to say that over the course of two years, that facility is now running as a top 5% asset in its class and is, has done a tremendous amount for the local tribe, for the local economy, for the job force, and largely for the environment. We've done some really amazing things alongside our partner in the Nikosli Wooten to really impact the environment in the local area. So those are kind of three examples of places we play and things we've done. Incredible. Well, thanks for those examples and everything from biomass to pet food. Maybe separate episode, we want to hear about the quality and the taste. <laughs> There's a video of me actually eating grasshoppers and black soldier fly. So I'll dig that one up and send it to you. All right, great. Ben, uh, for the advisory businesses, who are your clients? Who do you work with? What kinds of investors or other groups bring you into projects? Yeah, so proud to say today we represent about 80 different investors. We support dozens of infrastructure credit funds, such as like Apollo, Blackstone, Riverstone, a lot of the big names, GIP. We work with a lot of venture capital firms and incubators to help kind of, we call it cohort advisory. So if there's a group that's made five or six investments into some really early stage carbon capture technology businesses, we'll come in and support from an advisory lens those their portfolio and cohort of companies, mostly from the perspective of how to constantly remind them that not only does your technology need to evolve technically, but it also needs to be in consideration of what is economically viable and what is going to allow infrastructure funds to later on come in to actually scale this. So we provide that lens so that they don't go down a pathway that makes something great, but loses a ton of money. And the practical reality is there has to be economic viability to a lot of these growth technologies. And then we also work with a tremendous amount of private equity firms and, and equity investments, both into projects and development companies in everything from, like we mentioned, biomass to wood pellets to sustainable aviation fuels, renewable natural gas, lots of anaerobic digestion, thermochemical conversion of waste streams. We do insect agriculture, vertical farming. So a lot of really amazing things, as, as Quinn noted, that are really more on the molecules and process design side, not so much focus on traditional wind, solar, and battery type uh, energy platforms. And then we do a lot of work for the 
tax-exempt municipal bond space. So we do a lot of support for them on their investments, as well as looking at kind of bond ratings and bond monitoring and help them throughout their process, both pre- and post-investment. So it's a pretty wide range of companies on the advisory side. Thanks, Ben. Quinn, I think it's a good time to bring you back in and hear from you about Greenbacker and why you invested in Nexus. Tell us about the opportunity you see. So at Greenbacker, we predominantly look for the right management teams to grow these businesses. And after looking extensively for an opportunity in the green molecule space and being very prudent and disciplined in our search, we met Ben and his leadership team through a mutual connection. And what we were originally really drawn to was the level of technical and financial acumen carried by the founders and partners of Nexus. As we continued our diligence of the company and evaluated this transaction, we kept hearing from Nexus's clients and partners over and over again about the stellar quality of the management team on those two fronts, being able to not only come with the wherewithal to address all of the physical issues on the ground, but also carry in their minds the return profiles and the the real-world financial implications of each of these. But maybe last and most paramount that was most impressive was their ability to address and mitigate this real-world risk versus the paper risk that Ben was talking about before. And I think the hallmark of that is the BioNorth asset up in British Columbia. And what really was impressive about the turnaround work done there was the team parachuted into the actual physical asset. And there were some physical problems and financial issues at the site, but really there was a human problem. And the team was able to mitigate those personnel problems and address those and put in place a culture of excellence and operational wherewithal to carry things forward. And that's really what they have projected along each of these verticals that they are working through. So in these services vertical, they bring these human elements along with the technical and financial to each of their clients. In their development platforms, they do that as well. And on the investment front, they're doing that as well. And so those three themes really attracted us to Nexus and have been a continued bright spot in this company. The last thing that I would mention is that there is a very kind of, in a way, a selfish piece of this for Greenbacker that I alluded to at the top, which is we now are inextricably linked to the leading consultant in the green molecule space. So as we continue to explore investments in the sector, we will have the best and brightest minds there to assist us with our diligence, both in terms of market diligence, technical diligence, and financial diligence. Let's go deeper into that point, Quinn, because I'm aware that Greenbacker really isn't a typical investor and sort of like Nexus itself, you've got multiple business models. And I see that you're also an independent power producer that actually owns assets generating clean energy and that you own and operate infrastructure yourself. So tell us more about how you hope to grow those other parts of Greenbacker as a strategic investor in Nexus. So Greenbacker currently has two main fund strategies. One is referred to as GREC, Greenbacker Renewable Energy Corporation, and that is the IPP business. That business has 
to funds for all intents and purposes and owns and operates assets as an IPP delivering green molecules to its customers. The other strategy is the strategy that I invest out of called Greenbacker Development Opportunities, and we are investing in management teams and corporations accelerating the renewable energy transition. Nexus is a valuable and integral part of that holistic story, as both of these strategies are looking to invest more heavily in green molecules going forward. It has definitely not been a focus of the firm historically, but we see this accelerating very quickly through the next 10 years. And it's imperative to us that we have the right folks who can help guide these investments as we go. Thanks, Quinn. Ben, if I'm not mistaken, the round that Quinn and Greenbacker invested in added up to a $50 million equity round. Congratulations. That's quite a feat. What will that capital infusion allow you to do? Yeah, thanks, Jason. I appreciate that. We spent the better part of 10 years growing the company without raising any institutional capital, largely funded through partner equity as well as operating cash flows via our organic growth, as, as noted. And this is something we're pretty proud of. But yet after 10 years of becoming subject matter experts in these fields and recognizing the incredible growth trajectory of the markets that I mentioned prior, coupled with our kind of insatiable entrepreneurial appetite as a management team, we knew it was time to bring in some outside capital to accelerate our growth. It was almost more obvious than anything else. I'll state there as well, we are very thrilled to partner with Quinn, the GDEV team, as well as, as you might have saw in our press release, Ontario Power Generations Pension Fund and Liberty Mutual joined in on the round. So we're really excited. And it's been six months since that deal consummated, and we are incredibly thrilled with the support we were receiving. The The dynamic and the flow of communication has been tremendous. So I know there's a lot of folks who get a little bit hesitant and get a little nervous around raising institutional capital and how that could change their business from a cultural perspective. But for us, it's been extremely welcoming and the team has been incredibly valuable thus far, and I don't expect that to change. With that capital, we intend to expand our existing core services business by like kind of proactively hiring top-tier business development talent and expanding our relationships with corporates that are seeking to meet their sustainability targets. We're also using a portion of the capital to seed some of those early stage development platforms that we mentioned. There are two predominant ones, Nexus W2V, which is focused on converting source-separated organics into renewable natural gas with a focus up in the Northeast Corridor, where there's a lot of organics diversion laws in place. And then another one called Pathway Energy, which I mentioned earlier, which is focused on sustainable aviation fuel production from Woody Biomass. They're both developing greenfield projects in those areas, and we have provided a pretty sizable amount of capital to allow them to kind of incubate, and then independently they will be raising much larger sources of capital from the capital markets. The balance of our capital is going toward advancing our appetite to acquire additional distressed assets and utilize our services business to turn them around as described earlier. So we would like to ideally replicate what we did up there in Canada more times. And there are a number of those assets emerging, unfortunately, as a result of a lot of the change in how debt is priced today and a lot of the uptick in, in folks who are exposed to those debt price increases. A lot of the subsidies that are driving these asset classes have declined in value. So there are some And then a lot of folks are really just struggling from an operational and technical perspective. So we believe there's a a significant opportunity to deploy our capital that we raise into that uh, and accelerate that strategy. So that's the main three areas where we're focused on utilizing our capital. Ben, I'd love to double click into the opportunity around sustainable aviation fuel. I've heard of ethanol being a source for that. 
but I haven't heard of woody biomass as being a key ingredient. Tell us more about that use case. The one nice thing about but woody biomass is that it can be homogenized. And by that, I mean, you've probably heard of the wood pellet market, perhaps. It's probably the closest thing as it pertains to being uniform and to spec that coal is. And when you talk about the technologies that are available today to create syngas, which is required to essentially go to things like hydrogen production or sustainable aviation fuels or renewable natural gas, you need thermochemical conversion technologies. You'll often hear them referred to as gasification technology or even pyrolysis, but essentially really high temperature, heat and pressure to essentially burn whatever it is you're putting in in order to create that gas stream. But it's extremely difficult to do in practice because what has been done over the last 50 to 100 years, predominantly born out of World War II, was the gasification and and conversion of coal, which every day it comes in the same size, the same moisture content, the same shape. When you start looking at things like food waste and organic waste and all this, it's different every day. You might get plastic one day, you might get banana peels the next day, and it's really hard to have a technology that can handle that type of non-homogenous approach. So at Pathway Energy, we have leveraged the wood pellet industry to essentially be able to take in a very uniform product, which is a wood pellet. It's the same roughly 3 to 5% moisture content. It's the same size. It looks and acts and feels a little bit more like coal than anything else out there. And that allows you to have a lot more operational integrity with your technology process packages. And the nice thing about our focus is that it is 100% sequestration based. So we're taking all of the clean CO2 that comes off of the stream and we'll be putting it into a class six well through a geological formation off the Gulf Coast, off the shore of the Gulf Coast. So we have a nearly a negative 350 carbon intensity score, which is incredible. And when you look at blending that sustainable aviation fuel into the Jet A pipeline, you can significantly decarbonize the airline industry's fuel consumption, which is predominantly most of their emissions points, a lot faster than if you try to do it without carbon sequestration. So that's kind of where our focus is and how we see the value in leveraging the biomass. What the Nexus team has done here, for all intents and purposes, is using trees to grab carbon and stuff it underground. The first asset that they're building is going to be one of the largest carbon sequestration plants in the world when it's complete. And what they've done is they started by thinking about sequestration as the the goal and then found the market opportunity to finance that through the sale of sustainable aviation fuel. And I think that that is a hallmark of the creative way that the Nexus management team attacks this market is they had a theory that sequestration was going to be something that was going to be valuable. But today we don't have a carbon market. And so they found a method by which to monetize a market that doesn't yet exist through the insatiable demand for low carbon fuels through the aviation market. I just think that that's really, really cool. Walk us through your response to some of the concerns around sequestration approaches. And in particular, if you're sequestering carbon through trees, there's risks of fire, there's risks of double counting. And ultimately, if you're using the biomass in a combustible form, you're still creating emissions. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And one you can imagine we get asked a lot over the years. The best way I like to describe it is biomass is 
often perceived, as you noted, as something that, quote unquote, how could it possibly be sustainable, right? But there's a couple different lenses you have to look at it through when you when you dive into the carbon accounting associated with it. One is that all of the forest residues, many of the fuel that comes in for these things comes from sawmill residues, things that are already coming off of as waste streams from other industries. Two, typically when you're allocated, especially up in Canada, where you're allocated a harvest zone, you have incredibly well-enforced sustainability practices. How much you can harvest in any given year, how many trees you have to plant per harvesting cycle. You have to essentially make it a renewable product, right? You can grow trees just as much as you can chop them down and you are required to do so and have what's called a afforestation rate essentially cycle that, that will actually keep pace with how much you're deforesting. So in theory, if it takes, let's just say, for example, seven years to take out a plot of trees to be used and you start planting, you take out the first section, you start immediately planting new trees. And by the time you get to the end of the plot, those ones at the front have already grown in full cycle and you're just taking them, you're just repeating that cycle over and over again. As well as many of the times, I don't think a lot of people unfortunately realize that a lot of these fires that are happening all over the world from these forests are stemming from poor forest management practices. When a forest ages over time and all of its branches collapse and all of its leaves collapse and it starts basically creating a tinderbox and is can easily ignite very quickly. So a lot of the places that we're looking to do business are actually utilizing and, and actually in many cases government supported to help actually clean up a lot of the forest residues and a lot of the biomass that's actually high hazard risks to forest fires and giving that an outlet in something like what we're describing here. So that's on that side of the house. And then on the carbon sequestration side, it's really important to kind of note that when you look at a lot of the EPA guidance, these class six wells that require an massive immense of permitting requirements. Carbon management is an incredibly critical component of that. So if you look at what the market has been doing over the past 20, 30, 40 years in oil and gas, storing CO2 underground is a very common practice, albeit at smaller scale in the oil and gas industry. What we're doing with the class six well process is expanding that to a much larger degree. But the intensity and assessment analysis that goes into being able to be granted one of those permits is absolutely tremendous in nature, with the predominant theme being that you need to sequester below the water tables, right? You really need to be low enough where this isn't impacting any of the water streams or any of the freshwater sources that we rely on. These companies like Chevron and Exxon and a lot of the big oil and gas majors have been doing this for a while, but now it's going to a larger scale. And there is a tremendous amount of geological expertise, technology expertise that goes into this. Obviously, we'll see how it all plays out over the many years to come. But I think the, the majors and a lot of folks like us feel very, very confident that storing carbon on geological offshore formations, which has been done for many years, can be done at this scale very safe and effectively and will be heavily, heavily regulated and monitored. Thank you, Ben. Given the roles that you're both playing, you clearly have a lot of insight to the various investment opportunities that are central to addressing climate change. Things like waste to value in the circular economy, biofuels, biomass, and as you've just mentioned, renewables, carbon capture, and more. So I'd love to hear you talk about the spaces that are most exciting to you. Quinn, let's start with you. Hearing Ben and the Nexus team talk about the sustainable aviation fuel standpoint, and, and especially this carbon sequestration, I get very excited about the low to negative carbon fuel market. 
maybe responding a little bit to your previous question and piggybacking on what Ben said, I think that there is a huge opportunity to address some of the criticisms that that exist for carbon sequestration and forestry management. And I think there is a place for regulation to play there. And we hope to have strong regulation in place, holding everybody to the highest standards, because I think that there is a risk of greenwashing occurring here. And I want to ensure that this industry does this the, the right way. Coming back to this question specifically, I think that it is when done properly, the way that the pathway team is going about this, this is an opportunity for very, very large change in the energy transition to begin to show a method by which low and negative carbon fuels can be created because there is a very serious need to decarbonize certain tough to decarbonize markets that mostly are molecule focused. So I'm immediately thinking about chemical processes, concrete, steel, some of these largely emittive industries that historically haven't benefited from the electrification of a lot of other industries. And I think that Nexus and its subsidiaries will be able to play a role in that transition and especially address some of those tough to decarbonize sectors. The other place that I'm very, very excited from a GDEV perspective is allowing the evolution of the electrical grid. I think that we have largely cracked the code on how to drive down the cost of producing green molecules. Wind and solar are now delivering an extremely low levelized cost of energy. And that is a victory that now needs to be accelerated in terms of scale. And we need a lot more investment in that space. That being said, the grid is extremely old and the grid is struggling with investment. And where I see a very, very large market opportunity is in kind of what we think about as grid edge technologies. These are going to be batteries used as transmission. These are going to be energy efficiency platforms that can help companies and individuals reduce ultimate consumption. This can be microgrids and things of this nature. So we figured out the production side of green electrons. Now we need to figure out the distribution and transmission side in a much more efficient way. And I think that there are multiple opportunities out there right now and very smart people working on them. And that is a frontier that I'm focused on as well. Thanks, Quinn. Ben, what about you? You've got your finger on the pulse of the infrastructure space. What are the investment opportunities that are most exciting to you right now? So an area like I personally enjoy and have a passion for is actually in waste to value space, which is mostly focusing on food waste, source separated organics, tires. You just think about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of tons of waste we produce here that largely goes to landfill. That is not a sustainable long-term practice, right? We cannot stick stuff underground forever. And many states are imposing laws that are forcing the development of asset classes that will be forced to figure out how to deal with these in a more sustainable way. So I really think that there's a tremendous opportunity and almost an endless supply chain of waste streams, largely in, in food waste and agricultural waste that can be converted into things like SAF, like renewable natural gas, like green energy, et cetera, through what are becoming pretty well-known technologies, processes like anaerobic digestion, pyrolysis, and a few others to name. But I just really believe that when you look at 
no pun intended, the mountain <laughs> of an issue in front of us as it pertains to the amount of waste we produce and that sticking it underground is not a, a sustainable solution. There is ripe for opportunity because when you just think about everything you've ever thrown out in your life, that can be converted into something more valuable, whether it's an old laptop, it's your old dishes, it's your tires that you get rid of, it's the oil right, that comes out of your vehicle when you change your oil. There's businesses focused on taking that and upcycling it into marine diesel. There's companies taking food waste, making renewable natural gas. There's companies like Chapul taking spent ethanol grains and making insect agricultural larvae out of it. There's companies pyrolyzing tires to make carbon black that goes back into tires. I mean, it's just really, really tremendous when you think about kind of the recycling, waste management, and upcycling business. I truly believe that will be one of the fastest growing segments of sustainable infrastructure. Tell me about the policy space and how it's been helpful or perhaps hurtful to the market that you're focused on. Seemingly, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA would both likely offer enormous tailwinds for you. Is that the case? And what else needs to happen from a policy perspective? So subsidies have played a really great role over the past 20 years in advancing many of these. Obviously, wind and solar is kind of the case study is of putting in things like the PTC and ITC and allowing the cost of capital to come way down over time. And you kind of hope that any subsidy eventually is not required with a long enough tenure of time to allow the market to evolve to the point where it's not required. In places like Green Molecules, the predominant ones to date have been the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, which is a federal program. And then you have a California-based one, which has been a huge anchor, which is the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, the LCFS. Those have been tremendous in growing the renewable natural gas industries with all of the subsidies that supported those. But you need that across many different asset classes to see the same type of growth. And the IRA is the framework that I believe is set to do that. It's still in its infancy a bit in that they've kind of set a baseline framework, but then you need the treasury now to come in and really set the nuance level guidance on like how the mechanics of it are going to work, how that's going to influence your economics, your tax structures, and all those things. And that's starting now after about, I think it's near the one year anniversary point, it's starting to really come out so that people know the specifics around if I do X, then I can expect Y. Right now, there's still a little bit of ambiguity as how the IRA will be imposed and its benefits will be imposed at the detail level. And that detail level for development companies like Pathway Energy and Nexus W2V and stuff are really meaningful because it can determine which projects are economically viable and which ones are not. So that uncertainty and ambiguity is being cleared up. I think as those that treasury guidance is, is increasingly released over the months and years to come, you're going to see a massive influx of capital finding the home where there's more certainty and downside risk protection because there's less ambiguity as to how the IRA will actually be enforced. I'd absolutely echo what Ben said. I think we're very grateful and excited for the IRA and the subsidies that that has brought along. Clarity in terms of treasury guidance is imperative here because once we have that clarity, we will have roughly nine years left of clarity, which is the first time in the renewable energy market that we've had a runway long enough to be able to start making long-term decisions based on what we have, the rules of the road, and how they've been set. So as quickly as we can get clarity on how credits can be transferred, clarity around some of the DOE loan program office, when we see those financing starting to come through, I think that that's going to be very, very beneficial to accelerating the industry on the subsidy side. I think the other place that legislation is really needed from the federal level is some form of 
grid management and interconnection homogenization process. We see trouble all over the grid from ISO to ISO in terms of how developers and operators have to wrestle with the local utilities. And there are massively increasing expenses and very, very delayed timelines that frustrate the efforts of those who are trying to bring clean power onto the grid. It's frustrating their ability to do that. So if the FERC is able to come in and clarify and streamline interconnection processes, I think that that would be a very welcome change, such that there are rules of the road that are set and that are not confusing. And then lastly, I think state-level policy is extremely important as well. I think community solar has really, really bloomed in certain states that have set very clear guidance And when that guidance is troubled or delayed or hamstrung, you can see very serious setbacks. I'm excited for the proliferation of programs like the one that we have in New York State. And I'm excited for other states to perhaps take a uh, lesson out of New York's book and expand those programs across the Midwest and the Southwest. I think there's a real opportunity to roll out some of these sub-transmission installations, and that can really aid the renewable energy transition. Great. Ben Quinn, thank you so much. So many powerful insights, not just about your business and opportunities that you're looking at, but also about the regulatory environment. A final question to take us home and big picture on this, what else will it take to scale low carbon infrastructure projects so that we're able to meet the emission reduction targets that we really need to hit? So this is a great question that has honestly many answers you can come at it with. I kind of want to focus on the one that I believe is the most important, which is risk tolerance and a shift in what's required in risk tolerance. For the better part of, I don't know, the last 50 years, most projects in molecules and renewable energy were mostly down the fairway, as I like to say. So midstream oil and gas, combined cycle power plants, things of that nature. There was long-term contracts, very well-known and proven technologies, credit-worthy counterparties around the table, experienced contractors that were building these assets, etc. But things have shifted dramatically with these new markets coming to the forefront. Now you have shorter-term contracts for people buying your products, perhaps even sometimes it's merchant exposure. You have new technologies that aren't anywhere near as proven and don't have a hundred different examples you can point to that are in operation. You have lots of engineering construction contractors who have never built these assets and aren't willing to take on the risks of guaranteeing that they will work like they had previously and things that had worked. There's a lot more non-creditworthy counterparties involved, and especially those things that are involving waste streams and things like that. You have a lot of more mom and pops and traditional trucking companies and logistics companies and freight companies, but they're smaller and it's more decentralized, if you will. But this means that the risk profile has shifted for investors. Oftentimes, it takes a really long time for that shift to occur because it requires that all those things I just noted mature to a point where they feel comfortable. The problem, we don't have that kind of time. I think what's going to require is a lot of investors are going to have to roll up their sleeves in particular asset classes they're interested and get really comfortable with shifting their risk tolerance, which will likely come with a shift in more favorable return profiles. But it's going to require infrastructure funds and some of the large capital sources that typically look for something that's much more de-risked to maybe slide down the scale a little bit if we want to solve this problem that we face in a time frame that we require. Thanks, Ben. Quinn, we'll give you the final word on this. I think it's going to require a full court press from every single 
aspect of the industry. I think investors need to be more aggressive about deployment and understanding the risks that exist in traditional molecules and energy production through fossil. They need to be more aggressive in the transition to these new technologies and products and contracting structures. It's going to require legislative support and subsidies coming into the market. It's going to require operators to be more creative and thoughtful in the way that they solve issues, the way that the Nexus team has looked at carbon capture and said, how can we actually do this in an economically viable way? It's going to require municipalities and co-ops to come to the table and, and work with partners on how to get their power cleaned up and maintain the reliability that they need and manage their waste streams. It's going to require the transport sector to come to the table and say, how do we either electrify or shift to low emission fuels. There needs to be a all-hands effort in this gargantuan task that we have because I am, perhaps for being in this industry, a little bit skeptical that we're able to achieve what we need to do to meet the two degrees Celsius target by 2050 unless truly everything aligns and, and we're all pushing towards that, but we need to push harder. A gargantuan task, but you both have helped start building some momentum. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. Ben Quinn, all the best of luck to you. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.